Good evening, church. Grace and peace to you all. Please turn with me to Paul's letter to the Galatians. We'll be looking at Paul's letter to the Galatians this evening, and we'll be looking at chapter 2 this evening, primarily verses 15 to 16. Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 to 16. And the title of my sermon this evening, loved ones, is Two Kinds of Righteousness. Two Kinds of Righteousness. Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 to 16. And once you find your places in your Bibles, loved ones, please stand with me for the public reading of Scripture. Two Kinds of Righteousness, Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 to 16. This is the word of the Lord this evening, church. As Paul writes to the Galatians, here in chapter 2, starting in verse 15. Paul writes, We ourselves are Jews by birth, and not Gentile sinners. Yet, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus, in order to be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This is the word of the Lord, church. Let's go before one more time in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for this, the gift, the grace, just to be able to gather in your name again this Lord's Day, just to sing songs of praise to you for what you have done for us, King Jesus, and ultimately, Lord, to gather in your name once again, just to hear your word preached. I just pray for my brothers and sisters here tonight, Lord, just please be with them, Lord, just to be expository listeners, Father, to not just be mere hearers of the word who, um, who would ultimately forget, but to be doers of the word, applying all that they hear today, Lord, to their lives so that they can not only love you more, God, but ultimately live in a way that will bring you glory, um, not only for the sake of their neighbor, but all to your glory alone. I pray that for my church family here tonight, any unbeliever who stumbles across these doors, or anyone listening online who may not fear you as Lord and Savior, I just pray that, God, you will just get a hold of them today, Lord, that, God, they cannot depend upon themselves for their salvation because there is only one person that we are called to place our faith in to find eternal life, and that is you, King Jesus. I pray that for our guests here this evening, and just lastly for myself, I just pray that please remove me as much as possible, Lord. I'm a broken vessel. I cannot do this without you, Lord. So please empower me by your spirit for the sake of your people, for the sake of your name, that God, your word is preached this evening from my mouth, that God, your Christ is exalted, the gospel is proclaimed, and ultimately, Lord, Father, we walk away from these doors knowing that we have heard God today and that, Lord, we shall live in light of what you tell us to do this evening. Lord, we thank you. We just lift up all these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May be seated, church. One of the most beautiful examples of mercy found in literature is in Victor Hugo's classic novel, Les Miserables. Taking place in 19th century France, the story unfolds by introducing the main character, a guy named Jean Valjean. And he's released from being in prison for 19 years, a long time. His crime? For merely stealing a mouthful of bread to support his family. And so now on parole, Valjean attempts to find lodging but yet, no one is willing to help him because he is an ex-convict. But then, Valjean stumbles upon a bishop's house. Instead of turning him away, this bishop shows him mercy. Not only does he welcome Valjean into his house, but he actually gives him food to eat and actually gives him a bed to rest. But despite such perceiving such kindness, Valjean still has the audacity to steal from the bishop, particularly his silverware, overnight. However, the next morning... Uh, the police capture Valjean and bring him back to return the bishop silver. However, the, what makes this story so interesting is that the bishop tells the police, I actually gave it to him as a gift. 
He didn't steal from me. He actually left my gifts behind, so let me get him, get, give him more for him. And the police are like, all right, we're going to believe in the bishop. They actually release Valjean and let him go. But before Valjean walks away, because he's in utter shock at this, this is what the bishop says to Valjean. Do not forget. Never forget that you have promised to use this money to become, to become an honest man. Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil, but to good. It is your soul that I buy from you. I withdraw it from black thoughts and the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. And the rest of the story really is just Valjean keeping his promise, all because one faithful bishop showed him mercy. And now such a story is powerful. Not only if you've read the book or seen the Broadway musical or even seen the the movie adaptations over the years, such a story is powerful to us, loved ones, because it reminds us of a need that we all have. We all need mercy, don't we not? And not only when we sin against our neighbors or those around us, but we all need mercy against the one that we've all sinned against, the creator God of the Bible. Because humanity lives as if God doesn't exist. We have all robbed him, really, of his glory to live as gods ourselves. Humanity deserves nothing then but the eternal punishment of being in the lakes of fire forever. And yet, God in his mercy, the goodness of the gospel is that God in his mercy has made a way for us. He has made a way for we glory robbers to be forgiven back to him. As John 3.16 famously says, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his eternally begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish in hell forever, but have eternal life. The creator God has made a way for humanity to be restored back to him, and it is only by his grace and mercy that he shows to us in his son, his son, Jesus Christ. But yet, this begs the question, how is it that sinners like you and me can find such mercy in God alone? How is it that a sinner can even be forgiven for their cosmic treason against the holy God of the Bible. And good news for us is that the Apostle Paul provides an answer here to these questions. He provides an answer to these questions in our text tonight. And so it's with this in mind, loved ones, here's the main point of Galatians 2, verses 15 to 16. A person is saved by faith in Christ alone. A person is saved by faith in Christ alone. But how? How does that work? And we're going to see in our, in our passage tonight that Paul's going to compare really two kinds of righteousness. First, he's going to describe the active righteousness of works. And second, he, we're going to see the passive righteousness of faith. But yet before we can jump into our text to discuss these matters, loved ones, we need to recall what Paul has said so far in his letter, in his letter first. Get some context really quick. And so, so far in Galatians, Galatians 1 to 2, Paul has been really defending his authority before the churches in Galatia, or modern-day Turkey. Why? Because some Jewish Christians were saying that Gentile Christians, non-Jewish Christians, they need to be Jewish to be saved. In other words, they need to do good works, good works of the law, to find favor with God. As Paul says in Galatians 1, 6 to 7, earlier in the letter, he says, I am astonished. I am shocked that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And all this really then culminates, loved ones, in our last passage where Paul confronts the apostle Peter to his face. And if you recall last time, 
Peter, we see this scene that Peter, he's enjoying fellowship with his Gentile Christians at the church of Antioch, for they are now united by their common faith in Jesus Christ. And one reason why that's awesome, because one reason that makes the gospel of Christ so beautiful is that it transcends and unites people from all the cultures to be one family in Christ. However, if you recall from last time as well, you had these certain Jews, they came from Jerusalem, and they came to Antioch, and it caused Peter to kind of start to backpedal. He was afraid of them. What did he do exactly? He began to separate himself from these Gentile Christians. Why? Because what these Jews were teaching, and Peter was afraid, he was doing it because these Gentile Christians were not Jewish like himself. And it's, and it's because of this reason that Paul then goes to Peter and he confronts him face to face. He rebukes him for his hypocrisy. Consider the question that Paul asks Peter in Galatians chapter 2, verse 14. He says, If you, Peter, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? In other words, Peter's behavior contradicts the truth of the gospel. And what is the truth of the gospel, loved ones? It is that Gentile Christians do not need to be Jewish by keeping the law to be saved. And not only that, but no one, no one, whether you are a Jew ethnically or a Gentile, no one is saved by works of the law. Instead, a person is only saved by their faith in Christ. And it's with this in mind that Paul begins to now prove his point here in our passage tonight. And so with this in mind, loved ones, Let's turn to that first kind of righteousness, the first kind of righteousness that cannot save anyone, which is, again, the act of righteousness of works. The act of righteousness of works. And so look at Galatians chapter 2, verse 15, loved ones, how Paul begins our argument tonight. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And so our text tonight is really Paul's response to Peter during that confrontation back in Antioch in the passage prior. And it is unclear when Paul's response to Peter ends and when he starts to really get back into the letter of Galatians here in verse 15 to 21, it's really one section. Either way, both matters address the same issue, that of the Galatian churches, that with the situation with Peter at Antioch. The, the same issue is this, that if you're a Jew or if you're a Gentile, you're not saved by your good works. You're not saved by doing works of the law. Rather, you, both people, are saved by their faith in Christ alone. And Paul's going to defend his argument here in two steps. The first step is, is that he's going to begin with what his audience could agree upon. And that we're going to see that in verses 15 to 16 tonight. Next time, however, we're going to see Paul finish his argument here before he gets to the rest of the letter by focusing on what his audience would disagree upon. Maybe some objections that they had against Paul later in verses 17 to 21. In the meantime, let's look at the first part of Paul's argument, starting here again in verse 15. I'll say it again for emphasis. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And so when Paul says that we ourselves are Jews by birth, he is simply referring to every Christian, including himself, who is born a Jew. And if you think historically about this, the early Christian movement started in Jerusalem, started in Israel. So the majority of Christians at this point would have been primarily Jewish. And the reason why he says that is because, I'm making a distinction here. Yes, we're Jews by birth, and to further emphasize that, we are also not Gentile sinners by birth. 
But why is Paul really making this contrast? Why is he being so emphatic by saying Jews and Gentiles were different? Why is he doing this in the first place? Well, this is referring kind of to the social dimensions that, that existed between Jews and Gentiles in first century Israel. Because socially, there was this barrier between Jews and Gentiles. In other words, Jews and Gentiles, they didn't get along with each other. They typically did not interact with one another. And you can even say that there was a bit of hatred sometimes between these two people groups. Racism, you can call it. But nonetheless, they did not just interact with each other. And one of the primary reasons why Jews didn't interact with Gentiles and vice versa is because of what Paul says here. They were called Gentile sinners. And why were they called Gentile sinners? Well, because one of the things that distinguishes the Jews as God's people and the Gentiles is that the Gentiles, non-Jews, they did not receive the law of God like the Jews did. And the law of God here, what I mean by that, it usually refers to the Torah, the first five books of Moses, but it can also refer simply to the entire Old Testament as well. Nonetheless, keeping in mind Gentiles here, I'm not saying that Gentiles are ignorant of, say, maybe God's natural law and creation, that there is an absolute right, there's an absolute wrong. We all know that by our conscience. That's how God has created each and every single human being, whether you are a Jew or a Gentile. Yet, the point that Paul is, the, the distinction that Paul is kind of making here implicitly is that the Gentiles, they were ignorant of the specific implications of this natural law due to a lack of special revelation, that is, the Holy Scriptures. For the Jews, it would have been the Old Testament, or for the Jews, it would have been their Scriptures. Today, it will be your Old Testament Scriptures, loved ones. And to kind of understand this distinction, consider what Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verses 11 to 13, where he kind of really makes this distinction between Gentiles and Jews, one receiving the law, the other not receiving it. Paul says here in Romans 2 that, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who is righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And so just keeping the context here in mind, when at the end time judgment, when Christ returns to make all things new, judge evil once and for all, the creator God, he is going to judge all of humanity, both Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles will be judged without, you can say, the law of Moses because they never received it. They won't be held accountable to what they don't know. In contrast, you're going to have the Jews who will be judged by the law of Moses because they received as God's people. They will be held accountable to what they do know. But yet, hear me on this. What Paul is not saying, he is not saying that Gentiles will not be condemned to eternal punishment in hell for never receiving God's law. And nor will the Jews be granted eternal life for just simply receiving God's law. Instead, both Jews and Gentiles, every single human being, they are going to be judged. We are going to be judged whether or not we have perfectly obeyed God by keeping his law. But that then begs the question, is it ever possible for mere human beings to perfectly obey the law of God, whether you are a Jew or a Gentile? Well, consider what Paul says later in, in, the, in the letter of Romans, in chapter 3, verse 9. He says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, Gentiles, non-Jewish, are all under sin. Although God's standard is perfection, no one has perfectly obeyed God because we are all under sin. We have rebelled against God. It is our nature that we have sinned against God. But how have we all sinned? 
Well, Paul makes this clarity again earlier in Romans. In Romans 1.25, he says, because they, all of humanity, exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And so although we were made to worship God, to live for him, we exchanged the truth about God for who he is. And rather than serve the creator, we would ra- we, we rather serve anything creation as little gods than the one who is God who gave us such good gifts. That is how all of humanity has sinned against God. And so although God will judge both Jews and Gentiles whether they have kept his law, all of humanity, again, has broken God's law. No one is perfect. No, not one. And because of that, no one seeks for God. No one does good. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And because of that, the wages of our sinning, of our cosmic treason against the eternal holy God, is eternal death. And again, this is what makes the gospel so beautiful. And you might be like, how, John? I'm not talking about the bad news. The good news of the gospel is that it is not exclusive of who could be saved. Whether you are a Jew, whether you are a Gentile, regardless of your ethnicity, anyone could be saved if and only if you believe in Jesus Christ, not only as both Lord and Savior, but by faith in him alone. And just to kind of prove that reality, that the, that the gospel transcends all cultures, I want to throw this statistic at you, which kind of shows the, the global nature, the global scale of the gospel. This is according to the Pew Research Center a couple years ago. They report Christianity is the largest and most diverse belief system in the world, with roughly equal numbers of Christians in Europe, North America, South America, and Africa, and with a rapidly growing church in China that is, that is expected to outgrow the church in America by 2030. Again, it's all speculation, but yet it kind of shows the fact that the gospel, it's not exclusive of, of, of people groups. It includes everyone if you would believe in him by faith alone. You can't say that about any other religion. You can't say that about Islam because you have to be a Muslim to be, to be part of Islam. You can't even say that about rabbinic Judaism because fundamentally you have to be Jewish to be in Judaism. Only the gospel of Christ presents a unity of diversity here. Only the gospel of Christ brings all people from all the nations together as one family in Christ. As we see later in the, book, in the, in the letter of Galatians, check out what Paul says about salvation in Galatians 3.28 about this global reality of our Christian faith. He says, Now there is neither Jew or Greek. There is neither slave or free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. One in your faith, salvifically, in your faith in King Jesus. Therefore, Paul affirms here in Galatians 2.15 that Jews, we are distinct from the Gentiles ethnically, but yet Jews, Jews are not saved by being Jewish, by merely keeping the law spiritually. But why? Look at verse 16, the beginning of verse 16, because now we're going to see Paul provide his primary reason for this. He says here, loved ones, that yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul says that Jewish Christians themselves know that a person is justified not by works of the law. Instead, Jews and therefore Gentiles, all people are justified through their faith in Jesus Christ alone. But even by me saying that, In order to fully understand Paul's point here in verse 16, there's one word we need to kind of expound upon here really quick. And this one word is so important to not only understanding the point of our text, 
But really, it's important to understand the whole essential message of Galatians. And not only is it really essential to understand Galatians, but I would even argue that this word is key to even understanding Paul's overall thought throughout the rest of his letters. And so which word am I talking about? I'm looking at that word justified. The word justified is the word we need to understand to understand what Paul is saying here. But what does that word justified mean? What does he mean by using this word? And generally, throughout Paul's letters, primarily Romans and Galatians, but generally in Paul's letters, when Paul uses the word justified or or to justify, it generally means to declare someone righteous. In other words, it's, it's a declaration by God to the sinner that you are forgiven. Although you have sinned against me and there's nothing good in you, you are being forgiven. You are cleansed from your sins because, as we'll see later or shortly, because of what Christ has done on the cross. That's what Paul generally means throughout his letters of what justification means. And I, and I emphasize that because some Roman Catholics or Roman Catholics in general believe that, no, 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 it doesn't mean that one is declared righteous. Rather, it means to make someone righteous. It's not that, you, that it's a declaration, but God makes you righteous so that you can be able to do good works and hopefully that can get you a place in heaven. It, it, it's, it's very different. It's very distinct. But again, Paul virtually never utilizes that, the, the, the word justification in that sense. He never really uses it to make someone righteous. It's always, in a sense, declaration. God declaring one righteous because of what Christ has done. And the reason why we can know that is because how Paul uses that word, and this is a fancy theological term, but I'm going to throw it at you, loved ones, and I'll explain it with an illustration. Trust me. He always uses this word justification in a legal forensic sense when using the word justified. A legal forensic sense. Let me, to, let me to illustrate what this idea of forensic justification means. Think of a court of law with me, for example, whether you like seeing, you know, um, your, your, the, the, the TV series that kind of try to capture this reality or whatnot. Imagine a court of law with me. You got the judge up front, then you got the, the guilty party, and you got their lawyer trying to defend them. And say this, this guy who's guilty, he's pretty deep in debt, embezzlement, whatever. He is pretty deep in debt, and he's going to spend a long time in prison because he can't just pay his debt. And the judge would be just in declaring him, you're guilty. Therefore, you're going to receive all these years in prison because of this debt that you cannot pay. And the guy's like, man, this sucks. I'm guilty. There's nothing I can do. It's not, that I, it's not that I am made righteous that I'm able to pay off this debt. I am guilty. Therefore, I just got to suck it up and deal with the consequences. But yeah, imagine the back of the courtroom, the door's open. A guy says, I am here to pay that guy's debts in completely full. So the guy comes, pays debts in full. And it's like, man, like, who is that guy? It's like, this guy's so great. And so he's, so his debts are, are, are forgiven. And then the judge says, you're declared righteous, or I declare you no longer guilty. Therefore, your debts are clean. Go out of those doors on your merry way. That's kind, that's kind of what Paul is getting at here with this idea of forensic justification. It's not that we are made righteous. They were able to kind of like clean our debts ourselves. Rather, someone is declared to be righteous. Someone is declared to be forgiven. And as we see later with the gospel, that is exactly what Christ does for us, loved ones, when he comes to die in our place to take our sins upon himself so that we are no longer guilty sinners, but God declares us righteous. I'll I'll, I'll expound upon that later. But just to kind of help illustrate again this idea of justification, this court law scene, consider this parable with me as well, just to further illustrate this. Consider what Jesus says here in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. It's the parable of the the Pharisee and the tax collector. 
Jesus says he told his parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Jesus says two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And I tell you, Jesus says, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And this story is so interesting because you see these two people, the Pharisee, the tax collector. The Pharisee here believes that he is made righteous by his own good works. He believes himself to be justified by keeping the law, and he gives a list of what he does. In other words, he believes that he is saved by his act of righteousness, by his good works before God alone. And yet, who, went, who, went, who walked away justified? Who walked away forgiven? Not the Pharisee. It was the tax collector. It was the tax collector that Jesus says who was declared righteous. It is the tax collector who went away justified. It was the tax collector who God showed his mercy to. Why? Because this tax collector realized that his good works were not enough. His good works could not save him. If anything, they were just as filthy as dirty rags. He is merely a sinner before the hands of a holy God. And so of boasting about his own good deeds, he merely humbles himself. God, forgive me. He repents before God. And as a result, that is what justifies him. He can't save himself. He is at the mercy of God. This is what Paul is getting at then when he says that a person is not justified by works of the law here in verse 16. No one is saved by their own act of righteousness of keeping God's law. It doesn't mean that God's law is not good because indeed God's law is good. Why is it good? It reflects God's, God's good and perfect nature as holy. However, one of the key reasons why God gave the law to Israel was, was, was to show that no one can keep it perfectly. No one can keep God's law perfectly because the, it showcases really our depravity, our sinfulness as human beings. And I know that goes against the grain of people in our culture. It's like, John, aren't we born good? Aren't we good people? Sorry, the Bible says otherwise. We are fallen sinners. We are born in sin, and we can do nothing but sin because that is who we are as we are one in Adam. That is why it is really bad and foolish if you depend upon yourself to save yourself, whether it be your good works or you know, your righteousness. Like, I'm not a bad person. I'm not as bad as Hitler. If you depend upon yourself to save yourself, I'm sorry. Not only is that foolish, it is really impossible. Consider what Paul says later in Galatians, in, in chapter 3, verse 10, about this reality. He says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, and then he quotes Deuteronomy 27, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And although it's not explicit, what, what, the, what this is getting at is that, yes, God's standard is perfection. So, so we'll say hypothetically, for example, if you want to be saved by your good works, all right, just know that you can never sin once, 
The standard is perfection. And I know that we have obviously not have met that requirement, right? Because why? Since God is holy, we are called to be holy as himself. Since God's law reflects the one who is good, we are called to be perfect. We're, we're, it's not a matter of we're being compared to, I'm not as bad as Hitler, not as bad as Stalin. No, we're being compared to the holy God, and his standard is perfection. That is how you can get into heaven if you want to do it by good works. But yet, no, we, as we know, experientially, no one can keep the law perfectly. And as a result, those who are then, who are of works of the law, they are cursed. And what is that curse, loved ones? Big picture, ultimately, it is eternal condemnation in hell. It's God's wrath. That is why no one is justified by active works of the law. And so how then, because this begs the question then, if that's the case, if I'm not saved by my good works, by me actively trying to be righteous in my own right before God, to try to win his favor, his approval, how is one then justified before God? How is it possible for anyone to be in their right before God? Well, look again at verse 16 where it says this, loved ones. Paul says that one is justified only through faith in Jesus Christ. Through faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, a person is only saved, that is, declared righteous, forgiven before God, by their faith in Christ alone. And I'm going to break down what this all means practically for us as Christians and how does that actually work in a moment. But I do need to address another cultural concern here because even by me saying these words through faith in Jesus Christ alone, I can already, I can only hear some of my friends saying, but John, isn't that arrogant? Isn't that arrogant to say that Christ is the only way to salvation? And not only that, but isn't it arrogant to then try to convince others that this is absolutely true? Not only is that exclusively bad, but that's intolerant, John. How can you teach something like that? How can you believe something like that? And when people in our culture raise these objections, they are very, this, is, this is how we have to help them understand it. They are guilty of the very statement that they're critiquing because by them saying that I'm offended by your exclusive claim that we are only saved by faith in Christ alone, they are being exclusive of my belief. That, I, that we believe that we're saved through faith in Christ alone. And so it's not a matter of, oh, Christians are exclusive, get away from them. And, oh, but we in the culture, we are inclusive. No, everyone is exclusive. It's just a matter of whose ex- exclusivity is fundamentally true. As the late pastor Tim Keller rightfully observed, he says this, that it is no more narrow to claim that one religion is right than to claim that one way to think about all religions, namely that all are, are, are equal, are true. We are all exclusive in our beliefs, but in different ways. So, when it comes to every other religion, every other philosophy, every other worldview of some kind, they're all exclusive, but the one thing that tends to mark them all is that they, in some way, shape, or form, they hold to some form of act of righteousness. You need to do good works to be saved. In other words, you need to look upon yourself to try to get your way into heaven. And the interesting thing is, is that Christianity is the, is, is the exception to this. It is one of the few exceptions to this reality. And if I can give another illustration to kind of help understand this, loved ones, I call this my mountain to paths analogy. Not very original, but is what it is. Imagine a mountain with me. Every other religion, and, and say 
on top of this mountain is the Lord, and we want to be with the Lord. He's the creator. He, he's the highest good. We want, we want to be with God, but how do we ascend this mountain? It's hard. It's difficult. And what every other world religion will say is that, you know what? God has sent a prophet to tell you how you need to climb this mountain and get to God, whether it be through good works or obey, obey these certain rules, and, and, you, and you may be making to heaven. Not really a lot of assurance there, but nonetheless, that's generally every other religion. But the distinction between Christianity is that it's not that God sends people down to tell how people can get up the mountain themselves. Rather, God comes down that mountain himself. God is a man through the person of Jesus Christ. He comes down that mountain and says to humanity, don't look to yourself to save you. Look to me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Come, believe upon me, and follow me back to the Lord. That is the distinction between every other religion and Christianity. And it's because of that beautiful reality, loved ones, that we're now left with this question. How is it that a Christian is truly, really justified through faith in Christ alone? How does that work? And that's going to lead us to the second kind of righteousness that does save. Where active righteousness, focusing on yourself to, to, to save yourself through good works or whatnot, that one doesn't save. But yet the second kind of righteousness that Paul is going to talk about, this type of righteousness does save. And that is going to be the passive righteousness of faith. The passive righteousness of faith. And so look at Galatians 2 verse 16, where Paul says this, loved ones. He says, so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And so Paul shows that no one can be saved by their active works of the law, depending upon themselves to get them to God, depending upon themselves to get them into heaven. That is why he says here that he, alongside the other Jewish Christians, believe in Christ Jesus. We believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Why? In order to be justified by faith in Christ, and as he says in verse 6 and again, and not by works of the law. But why? But why? Why not works of the law again? Again, he provides at the end of verse 16 a reason. He says, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. By works of the law, no one will be justified. And by him, by him repeating this, he's really trying to emphasize this point. You can't depend upon yourself to save yourself. No amount of good works. First, how do you know enough good works is enough? And not only that, but no matter how hard you try, we have all fallen short. Therefore, we cannot save ourselves. We cannot be justified on our own works alone. And as Paul is kind of summar summarizing this verse here, he's actually alluding back to another text earlier in the Bible. He actually is alluding here back to Psalm 143, verse 2. And if I may share this verse really quick with you, loved ones, he says here, at least this is what the psalmist says, says in Psalm 143, verse 2, Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. And the overall context of that psalm, the psalmist is praying to God like, God, please don't judge your servant because I'm not righteous, no one is righteous. In other words, I'm not good, no one is good. And because you're the just judge of the universe, if you're to come down right now and judge me, I'm, me alongside all of humanity, we're going to go to hell because we are not inherently good because we have sinned against you, we deserve your wrath. We deserve your judgment because we have chosen to live for self rather than you. And it's interesting that that's what the psalmist is getting at. And by Paul alluding back to this reality, he's again emphasizing this point that no one is good on their own. And that's why we need Jesus. 
That's why we need to rest in him alone. And so as Paul has been arguing up to this point now, no one is righteous before God. No one can be saved by their active good works of the law. Again, all have sinned, rebelled, and fallen short of God's glory. Instead, a person, whether Jew or Gentile, anyone, everyone is only justified by faith in Christ alone. And as I'm, I'm, I'm going to finish with this thought right here. I'm going to break down how this all actually works. Because, yeah, that's, a, that's a, John, we understand that formula by faith in Christ alone. But how does it actually work? <laughs> and, 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 and I pray that as I break it down, that for you, my brothers and sisters, that this begins to give you this assurance. Really, this doctrine, when rightly understood, this is the foundation for your assurance in your salvation in Christ as Christians. I pray that this encourages you and this brings you such comfort in this reality when we understand justification by faith alone. And even for the believer, that you may understand, like, well, all right, I know Christ died for me, or that's what, that's what Christians say, but how does that actually work? I pray that as I, as I begin to break this down more to its pieces, that it does all that loved ones. And so let's return to that question then. How does justification work? What does it mean for a believer to be declared righteous by faith in Christ? How is forgiveness granted to a sinful believer and yet God is still just through it all. Well, first, let me, let me again remind, it is impossible for a person to be saved by their active righteousness of good works. And I know I'm repeating that, but now I'm being very particular when I use the word active righteousness. You trying to be as, as good as you can to, to do good works so that you can be accepted by God. And I'm not saying that Christians are not called to do good works. I'm not, I'm not saying that we are not called to do these things it is actually good works, the fruit of our salvation, that actually authenticates that your faith in Jesus is actually real. As James chapter 2 says, faith apart from works is dead. It's not that we're saved by our good works. No, we're saved by faith. But if your faith in Jesus is genuine, then there's going to be good fruit, good, good works. Your life is going to be transformed in such a way that shows that, man, that person believes in Jesus, not because they're good in themselves, but they believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior, and therefore, look how they love God. Look how they love their neighbor. There's a change there. But if we get it swapped, however, if, if we believe that, no, 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 it's, it's my good works that save me, we condemn ourselves at that point. We condemn ourselves to eternal damnation if we trust in our act of righteousness of good works for salvation. Instead, we got to do away with that momentarily. Rather, a believer is declared right before God. And this is a term I'm going to steal from a reformer. His name was Martin Luther. We are declared right before God by what Martin Luther called passive righteousness. Passive righteousness. In other words, a believer is declared right before God, not based on what we do, active righteousness. Remember, to help, to help understand the distinction, active means us doing something, right? We're not saved by us working for our salvation. Instead, Christians, you, my brothers and sisters, you are declared right by your faith in Christ. Or as Martin Luther would call, passive righteousness. And the reason why it's called passive righteousness is because we don't do anything to save ourselves. There's no amount of good works like, all right, God, here's my good works. Am I, am I good enough to enter heaven? None of that. Rather, we simply believe upon the name of Jesus by faith. 
And the reason why a believer is justified, declared right by faith, is because of the perfect work, not of you and me, but of the perfect work of Christ on the cross. And this is where we get to really one of the most beautiful aspects of the gospel, that of the great exchange on the cross. What do I mean by that? Well, first, God originally made everything good, right? There is no sin, there is no brokenness, even humanity. We were made to glorify and worship him. But our first parents, Adam and Eve, they sin against God and sin and death come into the world and we experience this pain and brokenness on a day-to-day basis. We see evil all throughout human history and, and we even see it today. But yet the goodness of the gospel, the reason why it is such good news is that although our sinning against God condemns us before God to go to hell forevermore, Yet God sent his son Jesus to be born as a man. The God-man came here 2,000 years ago to live a perfect life and to not only live a perfect life, but to, do, to, to fulfill the mission of why he was sent there for, to submit himself, to, to humble himself as a servant to the point of death, even death on the cross, to the point that he, three days later he proved who he was, the son of God who rose again from the grave. But what did he do on the cross, however? Well, this is, this is what some theologians called the great exchange. Christ has died on the cross for the sins of all who would believe in him. When a sinner sees Christ, or even today, when a sinner hears the goodness of Jesus, like, man, the God-man did that for me? He was willing to die for me? I don't deserve that. That's the whole point. It's mercy. It's grace. It's a gift. But when Christ dies on the cross, and when, and when someone looks upon him, like, that is the Son of God. He is the Savior of the world and believes upon him by faith, not by actively trusting in themselves, but by passively believing upon Christ as Lord and Savior, something interesting happens. Christ's perfect righteousness is placed into the believer's account. Not that they worked for it. Martin Luther calls this extra nose. It's outside of ourselves. It's alien to us. We couldn't get it, but yet because of your faith in Jesus, he gives it to you as a gift. And therefore, when the Father looks upon the believer, he says, you are no longer a guilty sinner. Rather, you are declared righteous. You are forgiven of your sins, not because of what you have done by yourself, but because of what my son Jesus has done for you on the cross. And so, so the believer receives Christ's righteousness, not because we deserved it or earned it, but because by passively believing upon Jesus. And in exchange, then, all the sins that you ever got, it's not that Christ, it's not that God's like, all right, cool, you're, Christ dies for you, I'm just going to sweep your swims under the rug. It doesn't work that way. Rather, your sins are exchanged into Christ's account, and when Christ dies on the cross, he says, I'm dying, not as a sinner myself, but I'm dying for the sins of my people, so that when Christ dies and he says it is finished, he has atoned for your sins. He has cleansed you from your sins. And so now you're declared innocent. You're declared right with God because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. And that's the goodness of the gospel, that God is both judge and judging sin once and for all, but he's also just a fire because he redeems the people back to himself through the gospel. Consider what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 about this beautiful reality, loved ones. He says, For our sake, he that is, he that is God made his son Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin because he was the sinless son of God, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Yet, again, not by our good works, but by believing in Jesus passively. Or consider what Peter says in 1 Peter 2.24. He says that Jesus himself bore our sins and his body on the tree, the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Again, this is the great exchange. And to the point where later the, the reformers of this time would later come up with a term, sola fide. 
Some of you guys know that term because we like to throw it around here at church. Sola fide, faith alone. We are saved by our faith in Christ alone because we don't save ourselves yet because of our faith in Christ. We are saved because of what he has done for us on the cross. He pays our debt in full and we are declared right with God, not because of what you have done, but because of what Christ has done on the cross. To the point where Paul is going to say this later in Galatians 3.11, loved ones, that now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law for, and he quotes Habakkuk chapter 2, a minor prophet, the righteous shall live by faith. They should not live by your good works. They should not live by trying to, do, try to live their best life now. Rather, the righteous, God's people, they shall live by their faith. And fundamentally, it will be their faith and King Jesus. And we know this is all true, not only because God has revealed it in Holy Scripture, but again, three days later, he rose again from the grave, conquering sin and death. And so if there's any unbeliever here who has not placed their faith in Christ, I'm here to exhort you lovingly. Stop trusting in yourself for your salvation. I don't care how much good works you think you can do. If you're to put on a wager, even if you do one sin, and we've committed thousands of sins, unfortunately, if you have all your good works on one wager and even one sin on the other, boom. You know why? Because that sin is eternally offensive against the God who made us. And yet Christ came to die for you so that if you believe in him, you don't save yourself. Christ dies for you. He pays your sin debt in full, and therefore you're declared right with God, the creator God, the one that you're made to live for, not because of what you have done, but because of what Christ has done on the cross. And we can only receive that good gift of salvation by believing him by faith alone. That's the goodness of the gospel. So if there's anyone here who has not repented of their sins and believed upon Christ in faith, I exhort you, please do so, because we're not promised tomorrow. Do so today so that you may have eternal life with God, not only in the next world to come, but to live for him now for his glory alone. And so now, loved ones, I know I didn't give a lot of application. I purposely left it for the end because I thought it would be most appropriate. There's really one application point I want you all to take away from this text tonight. As Christians, you must rest in your justification for the assurance of your salvation and not your salvation. Let me repeat that, and I'm going to expound upon this. You must rest in your justification for the assurance of your salvation and not your salvation. Because think about this with me. If you rest in your sanctification, first, it can lead to doubts. Because think about it. The idea of sanctification, which is really just the Christian life, it just means that although we have, we have been separated from the world, now we're part of God's family, we're part of God's people, now we're on this journey, the Christian life, to become more like Jesus each and every single day. We're progressively dying to sin, repenting of our sins, and trying to become more like King Jesus. But yet, like I said, it's a process. It's not complete. We're not going to be fully like Jesus until we reach um, heaven when Christ returns to make all things new in glory. But the reason why I'm saying it is because sometimes as Christians— we could be so discouraged to like, man, the, 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 the Christian life, we have our ups and downs, we have our successes, we have our victories, but also our failures and our, and our, and our, and our backpedaling, kind of like Peter earlier. And so when we tend to look at our sanctification, there's a temptation to be like, man, am I even saved? Man, I suck as a Christian. Man, I just sin. Man, I'm, I'm struggling with that same sin all the time. And I'm not saying that we should take that seriously. What I'm saying is that sometimes our sanctification can lead a believer to be so broken, so bruised by their sin, is that they live as if they don't have any hope. That's one danger if we rest in our sanctification for the assurance of our salvation. There's also another extreme, and it's the extreme of legalism. 
thinking that, oh, look how good of a Christian I am, right? I go to church every single day. I read my Bible. I discipline my kids. I pray. I do all that I need to do as a Christian, which, is, which not only allows the Christian to get into the motions of doing their Christian life, but, it, but, but this pride comes to the heart, and they start to believe in the lie that, oh, I'm a good Christian, which is really what they're saying. I'm, I'm the one who's a Christian. I'm the one who got me here. Rather than forgetting, no, I'm a miserable sinner who I'm, at the, who I'm at the mercy of the God who saved me by King Jesus. That's why, loved ones, we can't rest in our sanctification. Yes, we're becoming more like Jesus and we're, and we're called to put, death, put, put sin to death and live for Christ, but you can't live for your sanctification because of those dangers. Rather, rest in your justification. That is where we have true assurance. Not only is our sanctification stemming from our justification, but yet it's because we believe in Jesus, that is where our assurance comes from. Because no matter how hard we may fall, it's like, man, I still believe in the gospel, but am I still saved? Because you believe in Jesus, that's what makes you a Christian. That is what adopts into a God's family, and that is what and that and that is where God says, He is mine. There is nothing that can take my child away from me, even when they sin. Not to, not, not to take that for granted, but this is, a, this is my child. You are a Christian, not because of how good you are, but because you believe in Jesus the moment you first believed. And, and, and God even promised that he who began that good work in you, he is going to bring it to completion. But the, only, but the only reason why we're even able to live for God now is because by God's grace, he saved us by our faith in his son, Jesus. That's why we must rest in your justification. But there is a danger too, right? Some people might be like, oh, cool, saved, saved by faith by Christ alone. I can live whoever I want. Um, I, 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 can, I can go partying every week. As long as I go to Sunday, as long as I go through the motions, hey, I said a prayer in my life. I'm good with Christ because I believe in him. You don't, you don't want to do that either. That's, that's another extreme. You do not want to take that grace for granted. It's cheap grace. Because, again, as Christians, although we are justified, we're saved by our faith in Jesus, now we're called to live the Christian life. Now we're called to live to Christ. Dying to self and living for him. And if I make sure this last passage here in Galatians 2.20, which is really the heart of the entire message of Galatians, Paul says here famously, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, in this world, I live by, not by works, by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Again, we are saved by our faith in King Jesus. And because of that reality, it doesn't mean we can live however we want. Rather, if you truly believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior, therefore you live as unto him. Whether it be in your workplaces, if you're students, family, you live your life to his glory by loving him, by loving your neighbor. Whatever the gifts that God has given you, the, the, the talents, all these things, do it all to the glory of God. And if I may share this last quote from Luther again, which is really the pinnacle of his doctrine of justification by faith that he extrapolates from Paul, he says here, really the goal of our justification is that, of course, God doesn't need our good works, but you know who does? Your neighbor. Because God doesn't need our good works because we're saved by faith in Christ alone. And yet, we have been saved to now glorify God. And the one way we do that, loved ones, is by loving our neighbor with our good works. Whether it's by taking seriously their physical needs, whether it be the homeless, or helping our brothers and sisters at the church, or our neighbors in need, or ultimately, loving our neighbors so much by telling them the gospel. Telling them how they could be made right with God, not by believing in self, but by believing in God. And so, loved ones, with all this in mind, rest not in your sanctification, which is incomplete and will not be fulfilled in glory, Rather, 
Rest in the fact that because you believe in Jesus, by faith alone, you are a child of the living God, and that is our assurance that can allow us to keep living the Christian life each and every single day, all for his glory alone. Therefore, a person is saved by faith in Christ alone. It's not, it's not by active righteousness of, it, of doing it ourselves. Rather, it's only by that passive righteousness that we all receive when you believe in Christ by faith alone. And not only will you receive God's mercy and grace through the gospel, but you are now able to live for him. Before Christ, we couldn't. But now, because we believe in him, now we can, because you have been born again. And so, loved ones, allow Christ to live in you so that you may both love not only God, but also your neighbor. Only then will you be able to show mercy to others with your good works. Kind of like that bishop earlier in our, in our sermon, right? And even Christ through the gospel. Only then will you be able to do stuff like that because Christ first showed his love to you. And therefore, because he first showed his grace and mercy to you through his perfect work on the cross. And so with all this in mind, loved ones, we're going to pray and I'm going to give a communion warning um, as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper as well. So please join me in prayer one more time as we close our evening service. Lord God, we thank you for this day that you've given us and we just thank you, Lord, so much that God, you have saved us by our faith in you. We were not worthy of this reality. We, we deserve nothing but damnation and hell. But the fact that you're so mindful of us, God, that you withhold to us what we deserve, eternal, hell, eternal damnation and hell, and you've given us the gift of grace, eternal life in Christ, God, we thank you that, God, you have called us out of our sins, and because of our faith in Jesus, we are made in the right before you, and therefore, God, you, because Christ died for our sins on the cross, we have new life in you. We are restored back to you, and now the life that we now live, we don't live according to ourselves. We Rather, we live for King Jesus. We thank you for this reality, and I just pray that my, love, my, my, my brothers and sisters will not, will, will not rest um, in, their, in their successes or failures, which is too self-centered. Rather, they'll always keep their eyes on you, that, Lord, it's only because of you I stand. Therefore, I am reminded of that, of that I am saved by my faith in you. Therefore, as I keep my eyes on you and not on self, help me to live for you as I live for others more than myself. And so, Lord, be with my brothers and sisters regarding this reality and any unbelievers, Lord, that, God, they will walk away not trusting in self, but, Lord, just know that there's only true peace, true life, true salvation that can only come by believing in Jesus Christ by faith alone. We thank you for this passage, and we just thank you for this time together. We ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And as, um, praise God, amen. As we prepare for the Lord's Supper, um, Pastor Steve is going to pass around some of the communion elements. If you weren't here and would like to receive communion, or if you want to take it again, go right ahead. But this, just as a warning, this is a family meal. This is for those who have identified with Christ as Lord and Savior by faith alone, through baptism, and are now part of the family of God. And so if you are a Christian, have been baptized, and are not under church discipline from another church, um, please join us for the Lord's Supper. This isn't for unbelievers. Don't want to exclude you intentionally. We are, actually. But this is a way that we represent our unity as the family of God as a church. And so as you witness the other Christians here partaking it, just know that this represents our unity in Christ because now we're one in him by our faith in him. And so if you're a Christian, partake of this Lord's Supper with us as we, as we um, prepare it um, by hearing the song from our brother. And so join me, loved ones. Join me.